And if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm 16. We're finishing up this morning our study in the heart of God, and we're looking at the essence of the Godward life, which is a life of faith. And looking at that from Psalm 16. And if you'd excuse me this morning, I'm going to read in the New American Standard. I've memorized this psalm before in, the, in that version. And every time I read uh, a memory verse in, a, in another language, another translation, it corrupts my memory. My memory verse files, and also I, I tend to always quote the second half of the verse and the verse I've memorized, and it, it's very confusing and distracting, so forgive me. But you'll find it's very similar. Psalm 16. And we'll read together the Word of God. A mechtem of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered or hastened after another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Shaul, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. I was talking this week to a friend of mine who is a financial advisor. He's not my financial advisor, but he happens to be one. He's very involved in the financial arrangements of the ARP and has rescued us from some of the uh, um, less wise choices uh, those made a few decades ago in our retirement funds. But I was talking to him just socially over the weekend, and I was talking a little bit about the, the markets and so forth, and most of my retirement in our denominations uh, funds are lodged in the S&P 500, and he was advising me to kind of diversify because he sees a recession coming and so forth, and it was good, good word of advice. And in generally speaking, when it comes to investment, it's good to diversify your assets, not to put all your eggs in one basket. And in this life and in this world, that is true, because nothing in this life and nothing in this world, at least down here, is secure and stable. And if you put all your eggs in any one basket, uh, that basket will have a nasty um, a nasty habit of failing you in your hour of need, and you'll lose all your eggs. And so you want to layer your investments, layer your support matrix. So if one um, thing fails, if the main lights go off, you've got some emergency lights to stop you from being plunged, as it were, into darkness. Well, that's true down here. But when it comes to the life of God in your soul, that is not true. The secret of the life of faith is to put all your eggs in one basket, and that basket, of course, is God's basket, to trust in Him and in Him alone. And that's really the lesson of Psalm 
16. Now, we're not sure exactly what the context of this psalm is. David doesn't tell us. But we know, do know that David needs help. He says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. He needs preservation. And he's kind of arguing, Lord, don't let me down. I'm taking refuge in you, and it seems as if you're not helping me yet, and I, I need your help, O God. Don't abandon me. Judging from the end of the psalm and David's um, confidence that even if he dies, he'll not see death, it seems that David's life is in danger. In the middle of the psalm, when David says, the Lord is my chosen portion, or the Lord is my portion and my cup, uh, the Lord is a portion of my inheritance, is a better translation, um, uh, it's evidently that, that that language is used of a, a man's earthly portion, his earthly lot in the promised land. And so, it seems as if even that's in jeopardy with David. He's terrified he's going to lose his lot on earth in the promised land. And so, he, he reminds himself that God is his inheritance. God is his portion. Now, at the beginning of the psalm, when he says, um, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. That's, that's very um, strong language. And I wonder, is David facing the temptation to compromise, to make an alliance with the, the wicked? A bit like in Washington, you've got to reach across the aisle and make an alliance with the Democrats or the Republicans, depending on your stripe. And uh, you've got to kind of hold your nose and swallow the medicine because you want to get things done. You've got to kind of make compromises and make alliances. And that works okay sometimes in Washington but it doesn't ever work at all in the, the area of faith. And yet, God's people often face enormous temptation to do things like that to save their bacon. And I wonder, is David facing temptation? And he is resolutely turning away uh, from that. Uh, I was reminding the, the first service about Baxter, or I call him Sid, sermon illustration dog. Um, but Baxter, he'll sit and look at me and I'm eating a steak, and he just has this awful, I have absolutely no intention in giving him any steak, but he looks at me with such confidence, I feel ashamed not to. And uh, which is like Thomas Brooks said, would to God that I could pray with such a boldness, he'd be ashamed not to answer my prayer. But anyway, so I end up giving Baxter a piece, but I make him wait for it to hold the steak above him, and he'll look at it and uh, his mouth is dribbling, and I'm going, stay, stay, stay. And, and then eventually he'll, he'll look away from it. It's almost as if he, doesn't, he wants to avoid the temptation. No, I'm not looking at it like a vampire on the cross. You know, no, I'm not looking at it. And then when I say free, he'll gobble it up, and my fingers sometimes as well. Um, and David's like that here with these wicked. He's being tempted to compromise his faith, but he's holding the line, come what may. And so Psalm 16 gives us a picture then of the life of faith, what it means to take and to find refuge in God. Is that something you do? Do you take refuge in God? Do you find refuge in God? And do you know the joy of doing so? As we look through this psalm, we'll realize that faith means much more than just looking to God for help. Faith actually means looking to God for everything not looking to God for help just, but looking to God for everything. Faith is turning away from every other source of succor, 
every other source of sovereignty and satisfaction and stability and security and finding it all in God. Finding it all in God. I'm reminded of Calvin, one of my famous quotes. Calvin uses the word pietas. We have the translation piety, and sometimes piety is used as a term of disrepute. Oh, he's so pious. But in Calvin's mind, it was a beautiful term that summed up the whole of the life of faith. One of my favorite quotes, Calvin says this, I call piety that reverence joined with love of God, right? So, piety is revering God and loving God. That reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of His benefits induces. For men, for until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by His fatherly care, that He is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond Him, they will never, they will never yield Him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in Him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to Him. You remember Calvin's motto was a burning heart and a hand, and beneath it, sincere et prompte, sincerely and promptly, my heart, O Lord, I offer to Thee. Well, Calvin says, until you establish your complete happiness in God, you will never give yourselves truly and sincerely to Him, right? You know, so in other words, when, if God isn't your complete happiness, when you're doing anything else, when you're with anyone else, you'll want to be back with… You, 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 whenever you're with God, you want to be with your real treasure. It's like maybe young ch- children, whenever God maybe or your parents, sorry, not God, but your parents bought you, God tangentially, but your parents bought you maybe a new video game, and you really loved it, you were addicted and loved playing this new video game, and then every so often your mom drags you out to Costco to help with the shopping, or dad drags you out to cut the grass. You're out there cutting the grass, but your heart's not there, your heart's back in with the video game. Or whenever you're um, courting a girl or a young man that you've fallen in love with, and when you're not with them, you want to be with them. You always want to be with them. You, you never want to be apart from them. And likewise, Calvin is saying, if God isn't your complete happiness, then you'll find your happiness somewhere else. And when you're with God, you want to be with your treasure. You want to be with your complete happiness. And you'll never give yourselves truly and sincerely to God until you see Him as the author of your every good. That essentially is the essence of piety. And Calvin says, until you make that step, until you root all of your good in God, you don't really know Him properly. Calvin says, we shall not say that, properly speaking, God is known where there is no piety, where we don't find Him as our all and all of our good in Him. So, let's think together about the life of faith. We've been thinking about the heart of God, and we dwell in the heart of God by faith, and God also dwells in our hearts by faith as well. And so, faith matters. What is faith? Faith, is, first of all, means looking away from every other sovereign. These all begin with S. Faith means looking away from every other sovereign. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. Right? Um, you are my Lord, the psalmist says. That's where he begins. 
Taking refuge in God means taking Yahweh as my Lord. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. That's interesting. We often think of faith as taking Christ as your Savior. And there was a debate for a long time. Can you have Christ as your Savior but not as your Lord? And the answer is no. You can't have half of Christ. You can't cut him in half like Solomon's baby. Christ is Savior and Lord, and you have a whole Christ or you have no Christ. But David, when he thinks about faith in this psalm, taking refuge in God, he begins with the Lordship of God. You are my Lord, my sovereign, he says. You're the rule by which I make my decisions in life. And Jesus says there are many, even in the church, who say, Lord, Lord, with their lips, but their lives are a different story. And Christ says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do the things that I say? Right? People have all different kinds of authority structures by which they make their decisions. Some trust pleasure. They'll follow the Lord, but whenever their pleasures call them away another way, well, that's different. Then they'll follow their pleasures then, because the pleasure is the real master. Like, what is thy bidding, my master, whenever pleasure raises its head? And if God says no, but the pleasures say yes, which way did they go? They follow their pleasures. For others, it's profit, it's money. Show me the mullah, right? Um, and money really is worthless, especially now. We print so much of it. But it's really just a tool for buying our treasure. And as Randy Alcorn says, our hearts always, God owns our money and we are his money manager, and our heart always follows where we put God's money. That's very convicting. And where do you put your money? How do you invest your money? It shows you your heart. And Again, the almighty dollar is, 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 is many man's master, profit. For others, it's popularity, often among children. What, what, are my, what are my peer group think of me? And you live for their smile. And so you'll follow Christ as long as it costs you nothing with your friends. But as soon as your friends think, you, you, you're a Christian, that's a bit weird. Uh, then immediately, to, oh no, and you, you'll, you'll, what is thy bidding, my master? For you, your master's popularity. And for others, um, especially older people, as you get a bit older, um, power becomes the master. What will give me most influence? What will give me most significance and fame in this world? Um, lots of different masters that we follow in life. What is your master? Who is your master? Is it God? Or is it something else? What, what controls you? What, what battles for control in your life? And that's where it all went wrong at the very beginning, isn't it, in the Garden of Eden? You know, God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree you want, but there's one tree you can't eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the that tree, the essence of that temptation was, do you know what's good for you? Do you how do you know what is good, what is evil? And you, you discover that by listening to me. And so God put that very visible test, a tree, eat of all the fruit, but this, not this fruit. Why? Because I said so. And when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of good knowledge of good and evil, and then God said later, they have become like us, knowing good and evil. What God is saying is, 
They've become like us. They've, they've robbed us of the definitional authority to say this is good and this is evil. And rather than listening to God, Adam and Eve began making that decision by themselves. I know what's good for me. I know what's evil. And they became an alternative standard of good and evil. They called evil good and good evil. And the whole universe turned inside out and upside down. And we do that too every time we sin. We pick what God has said is evil. We pick that as our good, like the devil in Milton's Paradise Lost. Remember the devil's fall is captured in Milton's genius when he said, evil be thy my good. Even the devil only pursues evil when it promises him goodness. And we are too. We, we, we pursue, we only ever pursue evil because we think it holds out some goodness for us, even though we should know it never does. So, faith means looking away from every other sovereign to the Lord alone. Faith, secondly, means looking away from every other source of satisfaction, every other sucker, S-U-C-C-O-U-R, every other source of satisfaction. Preserves me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, my sovereign. I have no good, no satisfaction apart from you. It's interesting how submitting to God and enjoying God go hand in hand, like water and wet. And you can't get the one without the other. You'll never enjoy God if you don't submit to Him. We'll never enjoy God if we don't submit to Him. Can you say that to the Lord? You are my good. I have no… You are my Lord. I have no good beside you. Have you tasted and seen of the goodness of God? Is God sweet to your taste? If you don't find sweetness in God, if you don't find Him good, you'll never really enjoy worshiping Him. you never really enjoy hearing His Word. You'll never really enjoy the fellowship of His people, which is why David goes immediately on, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. As for the holy ones, literally, the saints, the same word used of when Paul describes the children of the church in 1 Corinthians 7, your children are holy, your children are saints, which is why you shouldn't divorce an unbelieving spouse, for the unbelieving spouse is sanctified, is holified by the faith of the believing spouse. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, whereas they are holy. Paul clearly here is marking out the children of the church as part of the people of God. which is why we baptize them. And one of the great marks, how do you know, how do you know if you find sweetness in God? How do you know if you find God is good, if you believe God is good? Well, you'll also find sweetness in God's people. You can't love the person of God and not love the people of God. Again, the two go hand in hand like water and wet. If you love God, you'll love His people. You'll love being with them, even kind of the weird ones. 
that you don't like, whether you're kind of one of God's more nerdy children and you think the jocks who play sport, they're weird, or maybe you're part of the jocks and you look at the nerdy ones and think they're weird, and, and you would not normally be friends one with another, but because you both believe into Jesus, that what you have in Christ more that unites you than ever divides you, and you, you, you love them. That, that you are brothers and sisters, and you love them, and it's glorious. It's a wonderful thing. That Christ is the great uniter, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Um, there were students at RTS who were from the Far East, and they cooked this really spicy food, so, food so spicy it made the walls go yellow. And when you walked into the house, it like it hit you in the face. The smell was just, it was a, a, it was a counter-cultural experience going round to their house. And they would not normally have gone there, but they were Christians, and it was wonderful just being with them. We, we love the same Lord. We serve the same Master. All the other superficial differences melt away because they're part of the people of God. They're my brother, my sister. And it's a powerful evidence. How do you know if you love the person of God, you'll love the people of God? Not because they're your friends, but because they're God's friends, and Christ is being formed in them. And therefore, you realize that every other lifestyle will bring sorrow along the way and death in the end. The sorrows of those who run after, who, um, who barter for another God shall be multiplied. I'm reminded of Christ. What will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul, bartering your soul, taking your soul down to the soul market and trading your soul? And if you get all of the treasures of the world, all of the diamonds and, and semi-precious metals of the whole world, enough to keep Tesla in business with their lithium and manganese and make you a multi-billionaire, and you have all of that, and you trade your soul for it, Jesus says you've, you've traded your soul short. Like, the, like the, the, the knight templar at the end of um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, whenever they, the guy picks the most beautiful chalice and walks past the wooden one and drinks from it, he goes, he chose poorly. As he kind of, I'm thinking, well, that was an understatement. As, he kind of, as the guy kind of totally evaporates and melts. That's a, it was a poor choice, but it was a massive understatement. Um, every other way leads to death. And David said, I'm not going to go that way. I will not treasure what they treasure. I will not worship what they worship. A few years ago, therefore, they were doing digging in Pompeii, which was destroyed by Vesuvius, of course, in the first century B.C., and uh, they find, they always find more and more of the citizens, the hapless citizens of Pompeii, and they find this woman lying face down. Um, they were digging through the basalt for, I think, a supermarket or something, or a road, and they find her lying face down, um, and in her hands were all of her jewels still. She had a treasure in her hands. Perhaps she ran back to the house to get the treasure when the, when the Vesuvius was erupting, and she died with her treasure in her hands. But what good did they do her, all these jewels? The answer, of course, is nothing. 
Every other lifestyle ends in death, and David repudiates it. I will not go that way. I will not join with that. Then, lastly, David says, faith means looking away not just from every satisfaction, not just from every other sovereign, but faith means looking away from every other source of stability. Every other source of stability. Um, you see that there in verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 7. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen. Literally, you support my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here's a stable foundation for life. And then verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. Here's a stable direction. He's got stable foundation for life and a stable direction in life. A stable foundation for life. Sorry, back to the New American Standard. The ESV is giving me kind of like motion sickness. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Now, it's interesting here, um, the, the portion of my inheritance. What David is saying here is actually that I take the Levites' portion as my portion. Remember the Levites? They had no portion. They had no part. They had no inheritance in the promised land. God was their portion. Like, for example, in Numbers 18, verse 20, then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor any portion among them. You think, well, that's not very kind. No portion for Aaron, the high priest? Well, here's why. I am your portion and your inheritance. Same words here. The Lord is my portion and of my inheritance. Not chosen portion. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. Exact same words used about Aaron. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. David's saying, I might be a king, but I'd rather be a priest. And then Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 and 2. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and His portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as they portioned Him, as, 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 sorry, as He promised them. Um, and so, David, I think here, I, wonder, I sort of wonder, was this written during the uh, Absalom's rebellion, whenever Absalom comes into Jerusalem, remember? And um, David lost everything. He lost his palace, lost his throne, his crown, his royal robes, his wives. He lost his nation, his sway over Jerusalem. It was all unraveling, and David has to hightail out of Jerusalem, and he's lost any portion he had down here, and yet portion that David says, I still have the only portion that really matters. It's like when you're digging, you know, the cashew, not cashew nuts, um, not cashews. It's ca uh, what do you call the nuts you've got to break open? They're like, they're in the shell. Pistachios, thank you. Pistachio nuts, not cashews. Pistachio nuts. Well, occasionally you, you rummage, you, you rummage in, the, in the pistachio bag and you get a, a nut with no shell, which is even better because it doesn't require any work to open it up, right? 
And then there's times you get a shell with no nut, which is a real pain. Um, and there's times you get a shell and a nut. You've got to work for it, but you still get your pistachio, right? Well, if you think of the earthly portions like the shell and the nut is God, well, if you have the earthly portion, but, no, but uh, the, nut, the shell and a nut, you really have nothing more than a person who has a nut with no shell. Because the nut's the real issue, right? Having God as my portion. And David essentially leaving, he's lost the shell, but he still has the nut, which is God Himself. And so he's lost nothing. He still has everything. Have you learned that lesson? It's so easy to get distracted by what's going on down here. Like the man in Luke 12, when Jesus was teaching, you remember? And Christ has been talking about the day of judgment, and this guy is really stressed out because his brother is the executor of his father's will, and the old man's dead, and the brother has not yet given the young boy his money. And the younger sibling is really annoyed. He wants his share of the will, of the fortune. And Christ is talking about the day of judgment, and the young boy just bursts out. Lord, tell my brother to share, give me my share of the inheritance. And Christ says, what's that to me? Who has made me arbitrator or judge over you? And then you remember Christ turned to the crowd and says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. And he tells them about a parable of a, of, of a man whose land produced massively. You get all this wealth. And this man believed a number of lies. The first lie about life is that life is, is found when you get more. Life's about getting more. He said, I've got all this stuff laid up for many years, he says. Wonderful. Life's about getting more. Then life's about building a secure tomorrow. What will I do? I've got all this stuff. What am I going to do? I'll build bigger barns to store all that stuff. Great. And then what are you going to do? Oh, life's about enjoying the simple pleasures. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's life. And then he then those are the three lives. Life's about getting more. Life's about building a secure tomorrow. And life's about enjoying the simple pleasures. Eat, drink, and be merry. But the fourth lie is the most devastating lie of all. Life is about to go on for a very long time. And Jesus said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will all that stuff be? So is he, Christ says, who is, who is, who is rich toward himself, but is not rich toward God. And David has chosen the better portion. He's put all, the Lord, you are my portion. Can you say that? Or take everything else. Take all of the money, the 501Ks, the investment, the investment funds, the cars. Believe me, you, O Lord, and I've got the one thing that really matters. Can you say that? Or have you, have you learned what it is to be rich toward God? Are you still scrambling down here for wealth down here? I'm reminded of Thomas Watson. When a rich miser dies, what a scrambling there is. His family is scrambling for his money. The worms are scrambling for his body, and the devils are scrambling for his soul. David's got a stable foundation in this life because his foundation's above this life in heaven with God. 
Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust deceive and where thieves never break in and steal, Jesus says. He also has a stable direction in life. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. It's a beautiful picture of how guidance works. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind, actually it's his bowels in Hebrew, um, instructs me in the night. We sometimes say, I have a feeling in my water. The Hebrews would say, I have a feeling in my bowels. Um, but he means his conscience, his mind. That's what he's getting at. How does the Lord counsel him? Well, the, the second half of the verse explains the first half of the verse, that when you make the Lord your delight, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will grant you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday, Psalm 37, right? That as we trust in God, as we, commun- as we listen to God and hide His Word in our heart, we often find God's Word moving in our conscience, moving us in this direction rather than that direction. Like when I came here to be your pastor eight years ago, right? All of my mentors to a man said, don't go there for a host of good reasons. Don't leave a bigger denomination for a smaller denomination. Don't leave a bigger church for a smaller church go to an even bigger church in the PCA, which was coming available very soon. And I said, and when we came here and preached, I just had this overwhelming sense in my heart saying, Lord, guide me. And I felt this overwhelming sense that God was calling me to this place at this time and to these people, which happens to be you, right? Or some of you. You've grown a lot more since then. But it was just a sense in my heart. I asked my wife, what do you think? She goes, I think we can make a living here and a life here. Life here, not living. A life here. And I thought, praise God. So we came and the rest is history, as they say. But God guided me in my heart. In a man's mind, there are many plans, the proverb says. But the Lord establishes, makes sure his paths. And here's David, I bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. That I thought it through, David says, as he's praying and, and meditating upon Scripture, his mind gravitated in the right direction because he's God-centered. More about that in a second. There's a great book by Kevin DeYoung. I think it's called Just Do Something. It's a great book on finding God's will for your life, young people. And did Chris, did you get that for the young people who graduated this year? Different book. Different book. It's a really good book, though, by… by um, it was given out at Leave with Character this year. That's where I got it. Great. So, a stable direction and a stable foundation for life. And then lastly, faith means looking away from every other source of security. David is secure in life, he's secure in death, and he's secure forever. Secure in life. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, actually, that goes with the previous verse. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He's at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. And the second, that verse 
explicates the first part of the verse. David isn't just making the decision by himself. Where will I go? Oh, here means more money. I'm going to go there. No, he's not thinking like that. He's thinking, he's thinking through the choices of life with God set before me. I have set the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand, the place of strength and influence. Because he's at my right hand, the Lord is my right-hand man, you might say in a figurative sense. He's the guy I look to for advice and counsel. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. My, my flesh also then dwells securely, David says. That's where security comes from. He's secure in life, which then also makes him secure in death. He will not abandon my soul to Shaul, nor will he allow his Holy One to undergo decay. Now, if you were to read the New Testament, no time to go there now, but if you were to read the New Testament, you, you know from Acts 13 that, the, that the, the apostle quoted that, this psalm, to mean Jesus, right? You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay, which is a verse for Christ. And you might say, well, then what comfort is that for me? Ah, because if you've believed in Jesus, you've become part of Christ. Like the two globules on your windscreen after you drive out of the car wash, and they're kind of there vibrating, and as you're driving and turn out of the parking lot right to go and do the vacuuming thing, the two globules touch together, and they become one and indistinguishable. And that's how the gospel works as we're drawn to put our faith into Jesus, and we receive Him into ourselves, and He receives us into Himself. We become one, indistinguishable from one another. The two globules become one, and we become part of Jesus. That's how He gets all of our sins. That's how we get all of His righteousness. It's also how we get His resurrection. God's promise to Christ, I will not allow my Holy One to undergo decay, becomes a promise to you if you're part of Jesus. And you might be the, His big toe or the stuff under His big toenail, but you're still part of Jesus. And there's no way God is going to leave Christ in heaven without his big toe, speaking figuratively. He's going to raise up every single member of his earthly body and bring you all to heaven with him. It wouldn't be heaven without you, in a true sense, because you're part of Jesus. And so God will not allow you to undergo decay, or his holy one to God will not abandon your soul to the grave. The grave will not be the trash can into which God abandons your body. You bring your body and soul to heaven, which is what gave the martyrs confidence. You remember um, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were martyred on October the 16th, 1555, under Bloody Mary's reign of terror. And you remember the famous story, um, Latimer, the older man, was looking at his brother Ridley, who was alarmed, not by a severe thunderstorm, but by the thought of being burned alive at the stake, which would not be my highest way to go out if I had to choose the matter, I have to say. And um, Ridley's nervous, young Ridley is nervous, and old Latimer looks at young Ridley and says, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. No need to be alarmed. 
doesn't matter what they do to the body. Our bodies are safe. They can use them as a living candle, but it'll be a candle burning here, but it'll be a candle burning forever as a witness that Jesus Christ is worth everything and more than everything. I'm secure in life. I'm secure in death, and therefore I'm secure in eternity forever. He will make known to me the path of life. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. What everybody else will see is death, but it's not really death. It's the shadow of death. When you die, Christian, you will not, God will not make known to you the way of death. He will make known to you the way of life. That In His presence there's fullness of joy. At His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It's, it's like when you, you know, um, I was getting a colonoscopy a few years ago, and they gave me the magic milk propofol, and I got that shot. I thought, I'm going to try. I am going to stay awake. I am not going to fall asleep. So I'm talking to the anesthesiologist, chatting away as they're giving me the thing, and I'm just talking. I'm not going to fall asleep. They're like, <laughs> I wasn't even aware. Of fo- I was just gone. To tape my mouth shut. It's the only way to keep it shut. But... Um, but that's where we're going. We're, we're all heading toward the grave. I had this really existential moment the other night. Um, we went to see the new uh, Indiana Jones movie. It was okay. Lots of chases and stuff and so forth. But it was funny because I, I saw the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when I was nine. And here I was taking my kids and Eliza, who was nine, to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. Or Raiders or whatever the, the new one's called, the Archimedes Dial, the Dial or whatever, I forget the name of it. But anyway, the new movie. Well, at the end of the movie, no spoilers, but he, he does see his, his wife from his first movie, you know, the girl with the black hair. And it was really interesting. She had that kind of whimsical smile, kind of a mischievous kind of smile. She has the same smile, but she's like 80. And it's really weird because I've seen like Harrison Ford's a bit like Tom Cruise. He hasn't aged a bit. Well, he had more than Tom Cruise's age, but not quite as much m- more. And <laughs> his face still looks very young, right? And he's in pretty good shape, too, um, for an 80-something-year-old man. But I've seen him grow older. In my mind, this girl from the first movie, she's still, like, I don't know, 35. And um, suddenly now here she is, 80-plus years old. And it's, it's really, I'm thinking, my word. It was like yesterday I saw her when she was like 35, and now she's in her 80s. And here's, I was nine when I saw her, and now my daughter's nine, seeing her now with no woman. And it occurred to me suddenly, I'll, if God spares me, I'll be 80 in no time. It's a sobering thing. Life flies by so fast, young people. And there's no safety, there's no, there's no refuge from Christ. There's only refuge in Him. Are you safe in time and safe in death and safe in eternity? Have you settled that question? For until you're ready to die, you're not really yet ready to live. And you only find that readiness by putting your trust into Jesus. Putting your trust into Jesus. 
receiving him means you look away from every other sovereign. He's my Lord. You can't take him as Savior and not Lord. He's a whole Christ. You take him as Savior and Lord. It means looking away from every other source of satisfaction. It means looking away from every other source of stability, stable foundation, Lord is my inheritance, and a stable direction. He counsels me. And it means looking away from every other source of security. He is my security in life, in death, and forever. Have have you discovered the, the secret of that life of faith? When Jesus came, He came to His own, His own covenant children, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of bloodlines, not of the will of the flesh, not of the choice of the flesh, not of man, not of a father's decision or a mother's decision, but they were born of God, John says, must receive Jesus and have that security of resting in Him alone as sovereign, as my succor, my satisfying presence, my stability and my security in time and forever. And all who come to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. Amen.